When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Mr. and Mrs. Smith Remarried Edition. It's Wednesday, February 21st, 2024. On today's show, Mr. and Mrs. Smith is Episodic TV's remake of the Brangelina. I wrote the word classic, but I also added a question mark. Let's call it a kind of classic. Touchstone, how about? Anyway, this one stars Donald Glover and Maya Erskine and is said to be an ode to millennial sensibilities. We'll explore that. It's on Prime Vid. And then The Color Purple, the new movie, is based on uh, the Broadway stage musical. Itself, of course, based on the now classic Alice Walker novel. This one stars Danielle Brooks, who's uh, nominated for Best Supporting Actress, Taraji Henson, and in her film debut, Fantasia Barino as Seely, the central protagonist of the film. It's directed by Blitz Bazawule. And finally, we discuss an article, the $50,000 scam call. How was a sophisticated, supposedly sophisticated financial journalist scammed out of $50,000? All right. Well, joining me today is Julia Turner, who is senior fellow at the USC Annenberg J School, the journalism school at USC. Hey, Julia. Hello. Hello. Joining you from Miami. My, no kidding, Miami. Oh, I got so many wrecks for you. Actually, two or three. Oh, good. And of course, uh, Dana Stevens, the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, joining you from across the table. I know. The face-to-face <laughs> is so good. All right, let's make a show. Okay, The Color Purple is, the, of course, the breakthrough 1982 novel by Alice Walker, according to many, many, many critics, the urtext of contemporary black uh, womanhood. It's about a young girl, Celie, growing up in the early 20th century in rural Georgia. It follows her through several decades of her and her close intimates' lives, adding up to an epic story of black trauma and a provisional triumph, I think one should say, in a white dominant society. It was made also, of course, into a Spielberg movie in 1985 starring Whoopi Goldberg and Oprah Winfrey. Breakthrough for Whoopi Goldberg. Oprah Winfrey was already a big uh, talk show host. But anyway, turned into a Broadway musical in 2005. It's now been adapted into a film by the Ghanaian director Blitz Bazawule. Stars Daniel Brooks, as I said, who's been nominated for an Oscar. Taraji Henson, Coleman Domingo, and in her debut, Fantasia Barino as Celia. And I have to shout out an incredible, I mean, it's not a cameo exactly, but small part by um, Lou Gossett Jr. He's amazing in the movie. In the scene we're about to hear, Barino as Celia has found herself playing host to a glamorous jazz singer, Suge Avery, played by Henson. This is their first conversation, and it's the start of an intensely meaningful relationship between the two of them. You're trying to tell me you don't know your own husband's name. I thought his name was Mr. Mr. ain't no name. It's a title. Just another way of saying master, if you ask me. That man can't even stand up to his own daddy. We got everybody calling him Mr. like he the only one in town. <laughs> Let him tell it. He'll try to convince you he is. That man get the high step. <laughs> How come you don't laugh none? 
You know, if you ain't gonna laugh, you need to sell your footy bone. <laughs> oh, smile is healthy. Ain't you got something to make you hop out of bed every morning and just smile? Ain't you got children? I had to. And I'm not sure if they're alive or where they are. All right, Dana, let me start with you. What do you what do you make of this movie? I mean, I feel like a sourpuss saying this because this movie is full of really good performances. Although not across the board, but in that scene, both those two are excellent. Taraji P. Henson and Fantasia Barino, who who played this role on Broadway. She didn't originate it, but she was one of the Sealies in the Broadway version. Both great singers, great actors. They managed to make sense of this movie. Not every member of the cast does. And I don't know. To me, this felt like it really had the problem, which we talked about a few weeks ago with Mean Girls, of you know, the much recycled property, in this case, beginning with a book, right? But a movie that's turned into a musical, that's turned back into a movie that at a certain point along the way, you start to ask, like, why does this project exist in this medium at this moment? And I'm not sure that this version of The Color Purple answers that question. I know for me, it didn't achieve that basic liftoff problem of the musical. It didn't It didn't cohere in its world that people would be bursting into song to express their emotion. The dance scenes were awkwardly filmed. Nadira, our beloved Nadira Goffett Slate, has written on how the choreography is strangely contemporary. So even though this takes place in the early 20th century, everybody's dancing using hip-hop moves, and that feels off and wrong. I don't know. I mean... Honestly, I feel like this movie is kind of a hot mess with some beautiful moments in it, most of them coming from either those two performers you just saw or from Danielle Brooks, who, you know, the reason that we decided to watch this this week is we're doing our Oscar countdown. She's up for Best Supporting Actress in the role that Oprah played in the in the Spielberg version. And she is fire. <laughs> she's amazing. She played the same role on Broadway and is incredible. But she's a pretty small part of the movie. And I think a big, big problem with this movie, and then I want to hear what you guys think, is the pacing. Like, it's two hours and 20 minutes long, which is pretty long for a movie musical. It feels about three hours long because there's so many characters. It's so sprawling. People disappear for 20 minutes at a time and then come back. It just doesn't feel like the director has a full handle on the material and what he's trying to deliver. Julia, a hot mess or what did you make of it? So I, I watching it felt a little bit like being at the receiving end of a, of a game of telephone. I read the original book. I don't know. I was probably 15 or something. I never saw the Spielberg movie. I did not see the musical. And then encountering this project, certainly the first half hour, 45 minutes of world building, which depict you know, the economic hardship of Black life, poor Black life in the American South in the early 20th century with exuberant song and dance numbers, it felt very jarring. Like why, like people in fields with hoes, like hopping and skipping around. it, It felt inappropriate to the subject material, very weird. And I did not understand the answer to Dana's question. Why is this a musical? Then we get introduced to our characters and the web of relationships that they build and that come to sustain them. And suddenly to me, it made a ton of sense for it to be a musical because what the musical is good at, which is, you know, the, the kind of soaring emotional flights where you take what people are feeling and turn it into song and to kind of a fantasia begins began to lift me. And I, I wept at the end of the movie. Like the, the second half of the movie was very effective and affecting to me. And, and part of it, I think, is to seeing this network of incredibly 
strong and talented Black performers engaging this work seriously, connecting with it, connecting with each other, seeming to enjoy the performance of it. Like once we were out of the scene setting musicals and into the web of emotional relationships, it really worked for me because that those are the underlying themes of the work, right? That the, that the networks you build and the relationships you build through who you are are part of what can carry you through and past your circumstance. So I don't know. I, maybe I'm the softy today, Dana, but I, it, I ended up feeling great affection and admiration for it once I got into its world. You're not the only softy. I was affected by the movie, but not without major, major qualifications. So I'm embarrassed to say I've never read the novel. I'm now going to. But it was clear to me, not having yet read our prep materials, that this underlying story as derived from the novel is filled with de- you know, deeply meaningful touchstones for its core audience, which I take to be black women in particular. A lot of our prep materials indicate that. It is overwhelmingly a story about, as has been said, incest, rape, family separation, domestic violence, and white terrorism. It's essentially a catalog of black and specifically black women's trauma. And then it gets interrupted by kind of jazz hand Broadway numbers. And as Julia says, and as you say, Dana, that is a hot mess. It's a very weird transition. And I would refine that a little bit and say, it's not only that there's like a kind of pop and lock contemporaneity, like a hip hop contemporaneity to some of the dancing. There's also musical is like a quintess, like Broadway musical is a quintessentially white form. And a black critic was saying, well, this is in the tradition of black musicals citing Porgy and Bess. Well, Porgy and Bess is about, about black people and it's, it's starred black casts overwhelmingly, but it was written by two Jewish guys, right? It's very much in the, the I mean, the Gershwins, right? It comes out of a a very not black form, and it's impossible to see something like a Broadway number and not think of the ingratiating effect on white audiences. Like, and I hate to reduce things to stereotypes, but it's like a Broadway musical is a hit when it appeals to like out of towners, you know. And I I thought so that to me was just an insuperable barrier between me and some of the deeper feelings I was having throughout the film. That said, I think the central performances are by and large astonishing. I would basically urge people to see it and familiarize themselves as I'm now going to with the underlying material, the power of it's just undeniable. But Dana, was was Colbin Domingo, who is amazing in Rustin, we talked about him a week or so ago, uh, and right, right, rightly nominated for the Best Actor Academy Award, was he one of the names you had in mind when you thought about like either miscasting? Yeah, I think he's kind of miscast, yeah, you know? I and I think, I, I don't know, I mean, it doesn't take away from the strength of his performance in Rustin at all to say that I don't quite believe him as the guy he plays here, maybe in part because I just saw Rustin, right, in which he plays this, you know, almost an empath, right? Like a gay man who's extremely attuned to social conscience and, you know, other people and is this kind of wonderful organizer. And suddenly to see him playing this abusive husband, he just he didn't quite seem physically threatening enough to me. This isn't even really a critique of his performance. It's just the casting wasn't quite right. He wasn't in the same movie as some of the other people. Also, his character didn't get a singing scene that I can recall. Right, didn't get yeah, to really playing the banjo sing and he or dance. Oh, that's true. I guess he does. Scene, he does but... play some banjo. Um, I, I guess I didn't feel like I it needed to be Coleman Domingo quite, but he was fine. But then there was just some some moments of just people who clearly were not on the same page as these seasoned Broadway performers. And I'm thinking in particular, it was a small role, but Halle Bailey played, you know, yeah. Celie's sister Nettie as a young girl, and. I mean, God bless Halle Bailey. She has a gorgeous voice. You know, she's a great YouTube star, but she just 
didn't seem like the character that she was. She seemed such such a Zoomer, you know, or whatever generation she is stuck in that world. But that kind of goes for lots of members of the cast. That's sort of what I mean by a hot mess is that there were like great performances over here and then sort of miscast, but good over there. And then somebody who's just sort of saying their dialogue over here. It was very heterogeneous in that way. And I think the direction reflected that a bit, too. I had the same response, I think, that you're describing, Steve, of being like it. You know, I've had so many conversations with friends and we've all read pieces by critics about even the serious dramas made about slavery or Harriet Tubman or sharecropping life or or various of the many Black American traumas, that even any version of Hollywood turning that into entertainment, even the somber 12 Years a Slave approach, I, I have an, a bunch of friends who are like, I don't want to see that. I do not want to be entertained by that. I don't think that that's an appropriate path. And that's obviously like a very draconian position, but I understand it. And if you've had a bunch of those conversations to then watch this version of like, you know, in the first 10 minutes of the movie, you learn about just a series of deep, unthinkable cruelties to Celia, our main character, each of which could merit its own entire narrative and film. And then suddenly there's like twirling calico and people bump jumping up on hay bales. And you're like, what? where am I? Like it's, it, it feels discordant. But the thing that I came to really love about it is like the American musical is a form that came out of wherever it came out of, but what it's being deployed for here is that someone thought, let's turn the color purple into this, this resonant text. Let's give it a whirl in musical form. (laughs) And like, I, I found myself really loving I don't know, just the experiment and chutzpah of it. Like, why not, actually? Like, there are lots of different ways to tell lots of different stories. And and the sense of the color purple is just this revolutionary and resonant work that has so much meaning in it because of the story it does tell that it calls people to interpret it and merits all these interpretations is what I was left with. Like, I just was really moved by the end of it. And I... Uh, agree with you, Dana, that it was not like a precision machined vehicle, but uh, it's a big, messy story too. So the notion that it's kind of contained multitudes uh, worked for me. Okay. Dana, Julia says it contains multitudes. I agree. There's one multitude that it might have contained more of, which is the lesbian relationship that's much more, as I understand it, at the heart of the novel and is a little soft-pedaled here. Yeah, I was a little surprised. I mean, it's not surprising in 1985, Steven Spielberg directing this story, that he would soften a love story between two women. And I haven't read the novel, so I'm not sure how central it is. But yes, I understand that the relationship between Celie and and Suge Avery, the blues singer who comes to town and changes her life in many ways, is more erotic in the book. There is one sort of, there's a kiss, but the kiss seems to be happening in a dream sequence. You're not sure if it really took place. And the, and the follow-up really is, the, is that the two women are just friends. So the idea that this friendship is transformative is still there, but the idea that there's a romantic element to it seems to have been soft-pedaled to the point that it's almost taken out. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that comports with something that I've heard a lot of people say who knew the stage musical before seeing this adaptation. About 10 songs were cut out, which is sort of incredible when you think of how many musical numbers there are in the movie. But apparently the story has been quite truncated, and it's very possible that there was a whole arc between them that wasn't developed. But that goes back to my my original statement that I feel like this whole thing feels at 
both at once too long and rushed. And I'm just confused by the storytelling mechanism of this whole movie. But as I said at the top, I think I'm just being a sourpuss and not being open to what this movie has to bring. All right. Well, the movie is The Color Purple, the musical uh, from 2023. Uh, check it out. Let us know what you, what you thought. I, we're genuinely mixed on this one. Dana, before we go any further, we typically discuss business uh, right about now. What do we have this week? Steve, this week, the business is just to tell people about today's Slate Plus segment. Our Slate Plus segment is sort of by popular demand because Julia had been out for a few weeks in a row prior to last week. And people were curious about what had happened, whether she was coming back, and what was going on in Julia's life in general. And since Julia's life has undergone many changes in the last few weeks, and usually when one of us has big life changes, like Steve, when you moved back to New York City from upstate, or when I started writing my book, etc., we talk about them on the show. So we're going to have a totally Julia Turner-centric conversation that I hope longtime listeners and Slate Plus members will be interested to hear. If you're a Slate Plus member, you'll hear that at the end of the show. If you're not a Slate Plus member, what should you do? You should become one. When you are, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus content like the segment I just described, which many other Slate podcasts have as well. And, of course, you get unlimited access to everything on Slate.com. The podcast, the writing, it's all there with no ads for you. It is a tough moment for journalism all around, and these memberships are part of what helps keep Slate afloat. So please sign up today at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Once again, that's Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend. Hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. All right. Mr. and Mrs. Smith was the uh, 2005 feature about two undercover assassins who were married to one another. Its commercial fortunes, of course, were aided not just by the stunning physical beauty of its two stars, but by the fact that they, it turned out, were having an onset affair. It spawned our one of our favorite portmanteaus, Brangelina. Now we have glove skin. Anyway, we have the uh, Amazon. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh going to be huge. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, this is the Prime Video re- reboot starring Donald Glover and Maya Erskine. However, it does alter the premise meaningfully. They aren't hot married who are also spies. They're hireling secret agents pretending to be married to execute their perilous assignments. These are undertaken for a shadowy entity we suspect is nefarious and privately owned. Uh, the show is filled with cynicism, dubious ethics, moral ennui, and shifting sexual politics, and therefore has been described as a millennial rebuke in peak TV form. In the clip we're about to hear, we have quote-unquote John and quote-unquote Jane Smith, played by Glover and Erskine, getting used to their roles as fake husband and wife. Jane has just described a neighbor as hot, and John doesn't know quite how he feels about it. Let's listen. No, I'm not jealous. It's just... 
it's it's weird to have my wife say the neighbor is hot. But I'm not your wife, actually. Yeah, true. I I know that. We're not together. I know. Really. I get it. Okay. I know that, but you know, do you think the company wants us to to have sex? No. That well, yeah, part of it to get together. Uh I don't think we should. Do yeah. you? No, I don't think we should necessarily. I I mean, I think it's better if we just keep it separate. Absolutely, yeah. It's just simpler that way. I'm not saying we should. I know, I know. I'm just, great, we're agreeing. <laughs> I agree with you. Here, I got you breakfast. Oh. Julia, what did you make of this TV show? Uh, what an enjoyable TV show. <laughs> I mean, I am just really enjoying this late peak TV trend of shows being full of incredible acting and high production value and then fundamentally just being hangout procedurals. I went back, you know, because we start so many shows for this podcast, it's very rare that I finish a show, but I've been going back to, to take the back lap of Poker Face, which is a show that this reminded me of significantly, just in that it has incredible performances, an insane lineup of guest stars, like literally that neighbor that we heard them talking about, just played by Paul Dano, like just, just, you know, Oscarishly showing up in cameos here and there. And I don't know. I enjoyed the kind of prickly comedic energy of Donald Glover and Maya Erskine kind of bickering behind the scenes as they, you know, do ludicrous spy missions, especially in opposition to the Brad and Angelina, like have sex swinging from the chandeliers with guns, kind of machismo version (laughs) that we saw 20 years ago. Uh, This one's like smaller, quieter, and maybe should leave us feeling that we live in an impoverished and less glamorous world. But uh, I was into it. An impoverished and less glamorous world is kind of the point, right, Dana? I mean, it's about millennials having to do shit they don't want to do for money in a a way. I mean, the show itself basically says that. What do you make of this? I wish it had done more with that idea and with all of the ideas it floats. I mean, I think this is my crank week. I'm very, very cranky. <laughs> like everybody's enjoying art and I'm just coming in saying, ah, why is it not this other way? Look, the part of this show that is an, an allegory for, for gig labor, as you were talking about, and for sort of millennial workers in the economy is pretty clever and well-realized. The two central performances are charming. These are both comedians, right? I think of them both in their lives as, I mean, they act, he sings, right? But comedy is sort of where I at least have, have known them from previously. And they're funny. They're good at being funny. I don't think, though, that this show either goes deep enough about the questions that it tries to ask about marriage or has a coherent enough spy plot and, you know, sort of sort of structure that they're inserted into for it to have very much substance or resiliency. That said, it's very watchable. I watched the whole thing. I mean, despite my my critiques, I spent the whole weekend sort of binging it because it's funny and pleasant. And like Julia said, it's got incredible cameos every single minute. There's a Sharon Horgan. There's a John Turturro. You know, there's just great actors playing small roles and usually not surviving the episodes. <laughs> But the, the spy plots that they get sent on, I mean, I'm not asking for realism, right? I love the Americans, and that is fair, goes fairly far in the direction of, you know, imagining impossible scenarios, et cetera. But I just didn't believe that these two 
would be recruited by a spy agency, that there was a spy agency that would let people do things as sloppily as they were constantly doing everything. In every single episode, with no disguise on whatsoever, they're just out in broad daylight in public doing things that anyone would remember, right? Like later on, if you were investigating, oh, why was someone found dead in this location? People would say, oh, well, this couple came running through with guns, (laughs) right? Like there were so many, why didn't they just do this or that kind of moments for me. Like, I'm not asking for it to be cinema verite and what it would actually be to be a spy, but like create a fake James Bondy spy agency that has some rules, you know? All of that said, it's a pretty endearing show. Like I, and it ends on a cliffhanger and I'm curious what happens next, but I think it's not bringing its A game and I would like to put those scripts through another round of edits. I feel like that exact quality you describe, the kind of LOL, nothing matters approach to spycraft that they bring is the whole point and is so funny. It's sort of like, you know, my generation, I guess I'm technically on the edge of millennial, but I feel like the the ethos of the prior spy show of like through great cunning and great craft and a bunch of terrific wigs, you can (laughs) achieve blah, 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 blah. And this is just, it's a gig economy show. Who fucking cares who your boss is? Who fucking cares what the point is? You're there to make some money and get out and live as much of a good life as you can. Like the nihilism of it is the point. And to the degree that, you know, any it ever works to randomly kill somebody, it, are the wigs the thing that actually makes it work? Like maybe the way that you're a spy is you just run around as yourself in broad daylight until someone catches you and they replace you with other disposable Johns and Janes. Right. Or you wear like a mask that's a perfect facsimile of a human head and face and at exactly the key moment you rip it off. Mission Impossible revealing style. You've been, I mean, it's like they're just loaded with preposterous improbabilities. I got to say team dana all the way and i need more oh way more curmudgeonly i mean i hated this show i gave it three full solid episodes three hours of my life i'm never getting back i didn't like anything about it there's some rudimentary effort that needs to be made on the part of a creator to make you suspend your disbelief and if it, it and it doesn't there's no loophole there right like like it's my disbelief that has to be suspended and it's your sweat and creative equity that has to go into making it suspend. If you don't do it, that's on you, not me. I just, Dana, I'm completely with you. The implausibility, they're so lazy. That's the problem is, you know, you're kind of laughing along with the Mission Impossible. Oh my God, that person with a completely different body type looked like that other person simply by having a bunch of latex on their head. The problem is it's millennial attitudinizing gets in the way of that every every minute of it. It's like this kind of smoldering, deadpan, detached, uh, deep, deep tissue malaise and cynicism that supposedly is characteristic of this micro-generation. It's like, it, it's too slow. It's not funny. And here's the thing it did that, that most dismayed me. I saw Magic Mike 2, one of my favorite movies of all time, by the way, <laughs> and there was this young performer actor in it who i did not recognize at the time and he has a relatively small but key part and i was like i have no idea who that guy is whatever he's selling i'm buying and i hope he's not only in the rest of this movie he's in every movie i ever watch for the rest of my life and it was the first time i'd interacted with an on-screen donald glover aka childish gambino aka the single most fucking charismatic performer an amazing uh, hip-hop artist 
and an insanely gifted television auteur, and it rendered him so fucking inert. He was so layered under all of this, like, eh, I don't know, I guess, I guess we'll go kill that person, and we'll do 80 improbable things that should have us get killed, at least 79 out of all 80 of them, <laughs> and then the episode's over, and re-up your Prime subscription. I was like, this is a raw deal. I hated this show. Not one more minute of my life. Wow. Episode four is pretty good, Steve. <laughs> oh, you <laughs> creep. <laughs> There's Parker Posey no. for your Gen X. Oh, they, Parker they lure, Posey. They lure the Gen Xers back with Parker. <laughs> I got to say, Deep Tissue Molasse is uh, coinage for the books. I'm sort of persuaded by that. There is, I mean, I don't buy into the idea that work is meaningless and we should all try to put one over on the man because I'm square like that. But the good company factor of it to me made it interesting. I don't know. I, I, I and, and it's also Donald Glover didn't just like show up here for the paycheck. He's a co-creator no, of the I, show. That, but that's the thing I don't, I, that, I honestly, I just don't get it. Why, like how? Why is it not funnier? Did you, Julia? Scout's honor. Tell me the truth here. You laughed. Mm, I don't know. I can't say that. <laughs> <laughs> but did I laugh? Did I laugh? <laughs> if you uh, gotta ask, man. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I wait, think but Dana, wait, wait, wait. Dark. Again, not to cut you off, but like Dana, you watched every episode of this show? Well, in part, it was because I had a huge amount of laundry to fold this weekend. <laughs> Oh, this was the note that I had on the show is I understand the second screen experience now. I mean, that was basically how I watched this show. Honestly, it was sort of like, yeah, this is watchable. It's good company. I really do because our washing machine was broken for two months and just fixed. Have an absolutely enormous pile of laundry to fold. And That's a ringing endorsement. So you're basically saying like open your laptop start the show no, and saying, then leave I mean, for three or four I hours. Think, I think and I just didn't feel angry. Task, I don't think I felt task. as angry about yeah. it as you. And I'll just say very quickly, the one thing I liked about this show, kind of like the movie Green Card, remember the Depardieu, who's the woman? Is Andy it? McDowell. Andy, Andy McDowell. McDowell. Like thrust together in a pretend marriage. Oh gosh. And then you go through the beats of the two people falling in love. That combined with the old Mr. and Mrs. Smith template of two, you know, assassins or killers or spies, uh, actually married. I mean, it's actually a good a good concept. I just didn't think they executed. Okay, it's on Prime Video. It's Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Check it out. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, uh, the piece is called The $50,000 Scam Call. It's by Charlotte Cowles. It's in the cut. And as she tells us, she has been a financial journalist, uh, is one now, was uh, writing a weekly column about finance for The New York Times. Nonetheless, she got scammed out of 50 large, $50,000 cash. 
which she essentially handed in a box over to a total stranger. And the piece is a rather long backstory of how she arrived at that moment. And then something of an exploration of how otherwise really sophisticated people end up falling for scams. There's a psychology at work there that she gets into a little bit. Julia, let me start with you, and I'll add that that Cal's is currently the um, financial columnist for New York Magazine, and uh, that this piece went quite viral. I mean, there are a lot of interesting implications to allowing your supposedly star financial journalist to fess up to something like this. Well, I mean, to the ethical question, if it turns out that your financial advice columnist has been prey to a gigantic scam, it's definitely the better editorial decision to publish that fact than to conceal it, right? <laughs> like the sort of like, oh God, let's pretend our financial columnist isn't such a dumb dumb. You know, I suppose you could just part ways with the financial columnist, but that would be a pretty incurious way to respond to the phenomenon of a ostensibly smart and sensible and financially savvy person being scammed in this fashion. So the decision to publish to me seems like absolutely the correct one. Uh, and the essay's virality, I think, just has to do with the idea of like, how would anybody get into this kind of fugue state where you pass a box of $50,000 into a waiting SUV to a stranger? But as a piece of writing, I'm very curious what you guys made of it, because I found the description of the crime to be just tonally weird. Like she seems emotionally dead in that portion of the piece. And maybe that's an editorial choice. Maybe that's how she felt in the moment, kind of hypnotized or muted, but like her emotional self seems muted. And she does explain like the new facts about my kids. And they told me I shouldn't talk to my husband and they did this and they said that. But it's weird because the way that it's written does not actually give you more empathy for how it might have happened to you because it is not very evocatively emotionally drawn. And then as soon as she comes to life, like there's almost this sense of like gasping, like <gasps> like waking up from a nightmare once she hands the box. And then suddenly she's like a fully fleshed out human in the second half of the piece where she's like, as soon as I realized what happened, I... I just felt mortified and embarrassed and like suddenly humanity comes flooding in. And I just, that was the thing that was striking to me about it as a piece of writing. And maybe it's just what was, what the experience was like for her, but very curious what you guys made of it. I mean, I read it so many times over after knowing we were going to talk about it. I already read it last week just because there was a day when everyone was reading this story. And I think part of, of why we're talking about it now is that virality is sort of hard to achieve in this particular social media moment. Social media is so dispersed. But everyone was talking about this story on a certain day last week. Knowing we would discuss it, I tried to read more about it and read it more closely. And I agree with you, Julia. There's some kind of a a blankness or a misconnect at the heart of the the way she tells that tale that I don't quite understand. It happens. I think it's it's key to understand if you haven't read this story yet that this happened in a matter of hours, right? It wasn't as if this was being perpetrated over days and weeks and she was slowly being brought into this scam. Like the way she describes it at 12:30 on Halloween day, 12:30 p.m., she gets a call proposing that her identity has been hijacked and that all kinds of crimes are being carried out in her name. And by 2 p.m., she is speaking to somebody who purports to be from the CIA. And by, I don't know, it seems to be she's not that precise on the timeline. But by about 3 or 4 p.m., she seems to be going to the bank to get this shoebox of money. Like, it just, 
one of the things that she says later on in the piece when, you know, as you say, Julia, she suddenly sort of seems to come online emotionally and logically and start to make sense is that people get cognitively broken down, right, by interrogation. And that's part of the point of this scamming. But it was a pretty fast cognitive breakdown to happen in the course of one afternoon. You're suddenly taking all of your savings out of a checking and savings account, which why is a financial advice columnist keeping $80,000 in such low interest accounts? I don't know. And delivering it to a stranger. There's something there's something in this story that just seems like it's either being, I'm not going to say covered up, but that it, it's not being clearly elucidated in the middle, right? Because it almost seems like she realizes it's a scam while she's doing it. And that's what I would like to understand. There's a moment where she says something like, and I was starting to suspect that it was, this was all a lie, but I just wanted to get it over with. And that's kind of cult thinking or something. You know, at that moment, you're really thinking like somebody who's been brainwashed or programmed in some way. And yet we don't really witness and feel that programming and brainwashing happening. It's it's more like a series of things were said to me and I was cognitively convinced that I had to do this thing. And then suddenly she switches into somebody who was not cognitively convinced, but kind of like parallax view, <laughs> you know, like freakily brainwashed into doing something. Well, one other thing that's interesting, I mean, there were there was a flurry of tweets and speculation over the weekend about was it fabricated or did she lose money some other way and this, that and the other. I mean, she mentions in the piece that she recorded some of the calls, like she had the presence of mind to record some of the calls. And, you know, the, the New York Magazine is a magazine the fact checks its stories, like there's too many specifics in here for that to be plausible to me. But I was wondering editorially why we don't hear some of that dialogue in that portion, like the kind of deadened fugue state as a piece of writing is really interesting. And like, what were those hypnotic exchanges? Like, how did she fall under the spell? I mean, I also, I I am Still not sure what happened to me a year ago, but the thing that finally caused me to get one password and like get and like freeze my credit and get more savvy about the potential for identity theft was that I was either scammed or not scammed. (laughs) And I still don't know which, not out of $50,000, but I got a phone call from Venmo saying like, hey, you have a, a cash balance in your Venmo of a couple hundred dollars. But it looks like someone's trying to transfer it to an account in Venezuela. Is that you? And I was like, no, certainly not. I didn't even know I had a cash balance in Venmo. Huh. And then I went and looked at my Venmo account, and I did have a cash balance of the exact amount that they had told me. But no, there was no indication that anybody was trying to transfer it to Venezuela. And I was like, huh, I don't see any weird activity. And they were like, Let, uh, well, we just need to do a couple things to confirm that it won't be transferred to Venezuela. So can you give us this, that? Can you do this, that? And I started like giving them information. Again, I picked up the phone in the middle of the workday. I thought it was like my kid's school. I just kept talking to them. And then I, they asked me to read them the pin, you know, the like two-step verification pin. They, they were like, okay, you're going to get a pin. And I saw that the pin was from the same place that I'd gotten the Venmo pin from the last time I needed the Venmo pin. And I was like, oh, so it must be real. It's really from Venmo. And then they asked me to repeat it. And that was the moment that broke the spell for me. I was like, wait a minute, you're the whole thing with these pins is that nobody's ever going to ask you for them by phone. Like, why have why have I been asked to say this by phone? And then the fact that they like didn't catch it the first time caused me to realize, like, wait, you never say these pins out loud. That's not what these pins are for. Why is someone asking me for this out loud? And why did they ask me to repeat it? And it was just that one 
fact in the exchange that caused me to be like, you know what? I'm sorry. I got to go. And I hung up on them. And then I went and I tried to get someone at Venmo customer support and there was nobody. And I froze my Venmo and my Venmo is still frozen and you can't Venmo me. (laughs) But like, anyway, I, I just, I haven't been here, but I've been somewhere that felt like the beginning of the ramp. And I I really, I think that I would have dismounted several steps before the CIA agent part, (laughs) but, but I just, it gave me a little, you know, kick in the shin to whatever hubris I might have that any of us might not be susceptible to this. Yeah. I mean, this thing set off my bullshit detector, you know, almost throughout. It was lighting up like a Christmas tree. And you're right, Julia, that's exactly it. That weird moment where like, you know, the zombie resuscitates and sits straight up in the middle of the piece. It's just unclear to me whether it's committed sins of omission or commission, right? Whether there's outright dishonesty on the part of this journalist or not. There's so many layers and moments of stupidity. So, I mean, I'm just I'm just having the same reaction that apparently many people on Twitter did. It doesn't seem to me unusual at all. I mean, it's 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 a natural reaction to this piece. It's absurd. And here's really what my point is. I'm not going to accuse someone of fraud. I have no evidence of that. I'm just talking about my own bullshit detector. What I really do think is that the sin is of omission at a bare minimum, which is in that first half of the piece, that sort of zombified language, that really sort of dissociative language is hiding for something about her life or her state of mind that preceded this, that made her vulnerable to it. It's one thing to go a third of the way down a minor $200 Venmo uh, ha- I mean, who knows what they would have eventually gotten, but but you know th- that's that's one thing. It's another thing to be going and putting fifty grand in cash in a shoebox because somebody on the phone has just said that they're in the CIA. I mean, it takes it strikes me as very bizarre, and so she has to turn herself kind of into a non-person in the first part of the story to avoid what else might have been going on internally or externally in her life. It seems to me, if the story is true, and then secondly, she sort of fobs all of that off on this really thinly reported and and thought through idea that actually this is quite common. And she says, here are these other sophisticated people. So it's like, it suddenly becomes kind of a trend piece that somehow we're endemically vulnerable to this now in the age of, you know, digital whatever, porousness. Um, and actually these are sophisticated. And yet you, you look at only three or four examples. Each one is explicable in another way. A contractor who got stiffed for 400 grand. Well, that happens left and right in that world. You know, I, I just, I, it, it, the, what is missing from this piece is so utterly awesome that I couldn't go, I couldn't place even a rudimentary trust in what was being told to me. There were so many moments. For example, she talks about going to the FTC website at one point while she's on the phone. I guess they've spoofed a number from that website and they tell her, go to the FTC website right now and you'll see the number. That's the number we're calling you from. And she takes that as proof. And she even says, though, to the person she's speaking to, but couldn't you just spoof that number? And the guy just simply says, oh, no, you can't spoof a government number. He I just know. says something right. and then she believes him. You have an open browser. You can Google so that. So many bizarre moments. It's she nuts. she talks about wanting to talk to an attorney and the guy says, if you talk to an attorney, we can't Our help deal you is off. anymore. You know, you're right. going to jail, lady. I mean, it's it's nuts. Has she never seen an American movie? It would be the FBI on the other end of the phone, not the freaking CIA. I mean, it's just every piece of it. That to me is the frustration of it because I do know stories of people, not to whom exactly this has happened, but I do think things between $200 on Venmo that may or may not have been a totally appropriate security measure and this happen. And I know people to whom they have happened. 
And that is the missed opportunity of the first half of the piece, because to really use the powers of magazine storytelling to actually describe emotionally how you get into the fugue state and how you how you are manipulated and what that really was like, like the the piece. And I would not attribute it to fabulism or fabrication because the incentives are not there. Like it is not good for a financial journalist to reveal this. So that's to me part of the believability of it. But it's almost like her shame is still occluding her vision. She still can't quite look at it. She's almost feels like leaden in recounting it. Like she cannot actually emotionally interrogate it. And it almost made me wish like someone else had written the story and interviewed her and and listened to the tapes and maybe talked to some more other people because there's still, it still feels like it's a confession of a shameful thing that she has to, she almost has to expunge it to move forward as a financial journalist in the world. But it is not actually a really rigorous or interesting emotional interrogation of how that happens to people. And I, I do know smart people who have given away money for no fucking reason. I think the message of the piece is correct, that actually this is more common than you might expect. And what's frustrating about the piece is its inertness as a rigorous emotional interrogation of how that happens. All right, beautiful. Let that, let's let that be the last word. The piece is the $50,000 scam. It's in the February 15th, uh, The Cut by Charlotte Cowles. Love some uh, reader emails on this. What do you think of this piece? All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have this week? Well, a brief prelude to my endorsement is that last week I endorsed a movie called Dumb Money, and we had a little debate about whether or not this late culture gap fest had discussed Dumb Money in 2023. I was roundly mocked and put in, what did I call it? The Puritan for being, for thing? Being, put in the stocks. For I being was, roundly mockable, but yes, go on. <laughs> I was pointed at and cruelly mocked, but in fact, I was correct. We never talked about Dumb Money on the show. Slate Money, the podcast, has talked about it. We talked about the other two big business movies from last year. Blackberry and Air, but we never discussed dumb money. So my my endorsement stands that is new to the Slate Culture Gab Fest. It's really, really excellent. I thought of it actually when we mentioned that Paul Dano has a small but important part in Mr. S- Mrs. Smith because he plays the lead in Dumb Money and he's really, really excellent as this sort of financial advice bro. Really, really good performance. Anyway, that was last week's endorsement. This week's endorsement. I think, Julia, this is going to be really, really up your alley because I know you love documentaries about dance and generally watching dancers rehearse, correct? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. So while I was visiting my parents in California last week, they I got there and they had just watched the first episode of this Amazon Prime series called Dance Life. That is a short, I believe it's five episodes about a elite dance school in Sydney, Australia. And um, it's, I guess, college level kids. They're 18, 19 years old. So whatever that would be in Australia, they're fresh out of, of high school. And it's this impossible to get into small dance academy on the outskirts of Sydney. And we just follow one class through, through their two-year program course. We see their auditions. We see them, you know, getting ready for various performances, moving in between the the elite of the elite class and then the sort of junior level class. And you get to know about five or six of these kids and one of the teachers really well over the course of the five, five episodes. You see so much amazing dancing it's really, really addictive. All I can say is that during the rest of my visit with my parents, I caught up you know, with the episode that they had seen. And then every night of our visit, we would look forward to our episode of Dance Life on Amazon Prime. Ooh, I'm so excited. I will definitely watch that. That sounds amazing. I'm a ballet dad. I've got to watch this and, and put my daughter onto it. Julia, what do you have? 
Okay. Well, I'm no June Thomas and our lives are all poorer for it, but I am a little bit of a stationary freak. And for the last several years, I have been noticing online that there is a cult planner called the Hobonichi Teco. And it comes in different sizes and the sizes all correspond to like the British page sizes with the A, blah, blah, this and that, or possibly some Japanese substrate thereof. But this year, for some reason, I decided to buy myself the Hobonichi Teco 2024 Cousin, even though I don't use a planner. I All of my planning is digital. Anything with a date is digital. And I do use paper for list making. Anytime I've ever bought any kind of date-based agenda book, I don't use it. So I have like read these loving odes to this incredible planner and the fineness and thinness of its paper and the way in which somehow, even though it's not spiral bound, but it's perfect bound, it can lie perfectly flat and open. And it is the platonic planner of all planners. For several years, I've been reading these posts and been like, oh, I wish I was one of those people who used a planner because this planner sounds like just descended from the heavens in like, oh, angel wings. And finally this year, as I do every few years, I succumb and buy a paper planner because it seems so exciting to have a paper planner, which I then don't use. And instead, this planner is so great and it is as glorious as all the stationary blogs will tell you because of this paper technology and the way in which it lies flat that I'm sort of using it as my daily notebook. So I'm not using it for planning, but I'm using it as like my little record keeping date notebook. Um, Anyway, if what I just said sounds like boring gobbledygook, move right along. But if you are a stationary freak, the Hobonichi Teco is as wild and cool as all of the stationary blogs would have you believe. So give it a shot. Very cool. Okay, so it was it was down to me that we outlawed multiple uh, endorsements. You got to stick with one. Just give your one. And in part, it was because of these sort of jarring juxtapositions within. I would endorse like a pie stand and like a horrible you know trauma narrative or something and whatever but because my two endorsements this week are integrated and synergistic i feel like i'm walking through a a loophole in doing this so it's true i have two the first is something to listen to while you use the second which is my incredible playlist of covers i finally made a covers playlist of working on it in an ongoing way it's got like 20 on it now it's let's dance it's called let's dance only because m ward covered Let's Dance, the Bowie song. And that points to what the sort of, uh, you know, uh, criterion for inclusion, which is a kind of unlikely pairing that brings the essence of each formerly completely unlike thing into a kind of dialectical. (laughs) I have a submission to send you for your list. Yeah, let's hear it. Oh, I just I just heard Al Green covering. This just came out like five months ago or something. Reverend Al Mm. covered the Lou Reed song. No. (laughs) Perfect day. Satellite of a perfect, perfect day. day. That would be it. That would be perfect. I mean, that's like a, Dana, basically yeah, ding, a ding, ding, soul right? gospel version of perfect day, and it works so beautifully. That is the platonic essence of what I'm talking about, and um, I won't go through some of the. Some of them are just so great, but the most recent edition is an artist I knew nothing about, uh, Corinne Bailey Ray possibly Corrine Bailey Ray, does a cover of uh, Is This Love, the Bob Marley song. And she's just languorous and so soulful. And her voice is so perfect. Oh my God, I love it so much. And you're going to listen to this when you use your new hand crank pasta maker, which I got 
as a birthday <laughs> gift the Marketo Atlas 150s. Right, like weak connection, no, but I'll allow it. No, fired. <laughs> Clean out your desk. It's totally synergistic, and I don't think I've eaten up too much of my time, but very quickly, I'm not what you would call the target customer for this product. A friend of mine gave it to me. I mastered it on use number one, perfected it on not perfected, but I mean like by use number two, it was like just so incredibly easy. It is so much easier than you think it is going to be. It's so few ingredients, it's lickety split, and then you can pour and you've got this basically, it's the canvas, right? Like pasta is the freaking canvas upon which you can just paint whatever masterpiece you want. And the masterpiece can be as labor intensive or, or not as you please. It could be like we got some frozen pesto, uh, you know, or something or whatever, sausage and fennel, or blah, 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 blah. just throw it on top. It is so good. It's so fun. Like my younger daughter, who's never participated in a kitchen activity in her entire life was doing it with me. Wait, like, can I ask? So- I will agree that making fresh pasta is easier than you would think and incredible, but I really enjoy the KitchenAid version, which works great and does not require hand cranking, but yours is not mechanized. You're you're cranking it yourself. Yours doesn't require like hand cranking. It just requires the despoliation of the planet via fossil fuel use, but that's fine. You know, anyway, whatever I <laughs> I'm sorry. I really, I I love the crank. It's like really cute. And it's like, not, you're not going to get freaking burs, elbow bursitis. It's like <laughs> scarcely, anyway, whatever. Buy whatever pasta machine you want. I think fresh pasta is amazing. It's really fun. And listen to my playlist, which we'll post on the website. Julia, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Dana, thank you. Very fun. Always that much funner face to face. Absolutely. Yeah? All right. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Patel. Our production assistant is Kat Hong. Our producer is Jared Downing. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for.